You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Worthy is the Lamb. You know, there'll be a time in the future where the Lamb will be seated on His throne and all those down through the ages who have put their faith in Him will bow on their faces before that King and they will all cry out, Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Turn to John chapter 4. It's not a Christmas text, and that's okay. John chapter 4, we've been walking through the Advent season and trying to see how Jesus fulfills each of these four stages of Advent, hope and joy. Today we're going to talk about love. If you're finding your place, just a couple of things. We've had a phenomenal year. Uh, we've been blessed beyond measure this year as a church body, my family personally. It has been a, ple- a pleasure and a privilege to serve you uh, this past year. And we look forward to a, a 2020. 2020 is going to bring a lot of excitement, a lot of change. Uh, yes, we will be seeing construction start in 2020. And yes, we will be back in that building over there in 2020. Thank you for your patience, by the way, on that. Uh, and uh, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty confident on that. I'm pretty confident that, uh, that God is at work. And I, I'm, I'm grateful for your patience all this time that we've spent over here. I really am. I'm, I'm grateful. And God's continued to bless and move in our congregation. I'm very thankful for that. Next Sunday, next Sunday is going to be a unique service. I'm just going to tell you right now. Next week is going to be a worship service unlike anything you've probably seen. And I want to invite you to come back. If you're a guest here today, uh, if you're maybe in from out of town, and you're going to be around next Sunday, please come back. If you're a guest today from our area, I'd love to see you come back next week. Uh, we've got something very interesting that Bobby and I have been working on, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm already excited about it. But here we are today, and let's look at what God has for us today. So you're going to have to entertain me for just a moment. I'm going to try not to make this too boring, but I'm going to have to give you a little bit of history before we can get into John 4, because it is crucial to what's happening in John 4 at this well called Jacob's Well. 3,000 plus years ago, a man, we don't know who it was, had a family, and he moved to a barren wasteland called Shechem. And he was going to raise a family there. And if you're going to raise a family and you're going to have some livestock, you have to have water. And the culture we live in, we're used to walking over to a sink and turning on the water and getting a fresh glass of water. I would say most of us in this room have never experienced really serious thirst. Maybe when you served in the military, you were in situations where you just didn't have enough water and there were times where you were getting desperate. But I would say for the most of us, the majority of us, we've never experienced that kind of serious thirst where your life depended on getting a drink of water. Well, in this area, it was necessity for life to be able to find water. So this man sets out to do what men would do in this day and He gets some implements and begins to dig in the hard, crusty, dry soil of Shechem. And he digs and he digs and months would pass. He he would dig by hand over a 100 feet, trying to get down to the, the bedrock limestone underneath what we know today to be Israel. 
And as he would dig, no doubt he would get weary. No doubt he, there would be days he would want to give up. But his family and his life and his, his livelihood depended upon finding water in a dry, barren land. And then one day, after months of digging, he strikes water. And I would imagine that the family celebrates and, and that it is a big celebration that he finds not only water, but sustaining, life-giving, fresh water that is bubbling up out of the limestone that he's dug down over months to find. This well would provide life-giving water for generations to come. Not only decades, but even centuries would pass. As a matter of fact, generations would pass by, and then there would be this nation of Israel. And this nation of Israel would, would rise to power and rise to authority, and it would, it would accomplish for a period of time what God had set it apart to do, and that was to be a light to the nations. You see, the nations of that day were worshiping all kinds of gods, there were no gods at all. And people were thirsting for something real, something legitimate, something that, that a true God would move among His people. And God set apart the nation of Israel for this very purpose, that He would work among them, that He would bless them, that He would do incredible works, that the world would know that there is a God in heaven who's alive, who's aware, and who's involved. But that nation would begin to crumble from the inside out. They would begin to turn their heart and attention to other gods, just like the nations around them. And eventually the nation would split into two nations. There would be a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And this northern kingdom would find itself in the exact same area where this well was built so many years ago. As a matter of fact, some years after the well was built, Jacob would buy that land for a hundred pieces of silver. Later on, he would give that land to his son Joseph. And that land would be there and it would be prominent and, and people would raise families there and raise livestock there because of a well that provided fresh water in a barren wasteland. Well, one day, as time would pass, the, the northern kingdom, which happens to be settled right in this same area, area we know today to be Samaria, the, the southern kingdom was settled in Jerusalem, Judea, Jerusalem being its capital city. And over the years, there would be this animosity that would, that would build between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And that animosity would turn into bitterness, and that bitterness would turn into Hatred, and that hatred would turn into racism, and it would get worse, and it would get worse, and it would get worse. The northern kingdom would say, what's so great about the southern kingdom? We can worship God here in our own land. And so they build a temple in that land. And they would go through the, the practices of Judaism in a northern kingdom, and also other worship and other gods would creep in, and not only that, but other cultures. The Assyrian army would overrun that northern kingdom. The Assyrian army would, and this, this Assyrian army was used as a, as a judgment of God upon them. The prophets told them it was going to happen if they didn't turn back to God. The Assyrian army would, would take the northern kingdom captive. They would spread the, the people all over the region. That They would take other people from other regions and plant them in Samaria. And what would happen is, over time, the Jewish people who lived there would begin to intermarry with these other cultures from all over the world and build families. And because they were in the northern kingdom, because they built their own temple and began to worship God their own way, and because they had intermarried with other people, the southern Jewish people who believed that the temple in Jerusalem is the only place they should be worshiping, hated the Samaritans with a passion. The southern Jewish people hated Samaria so much that they valued dogs 
over Samaritans. When the Jewish people from the southern kingdom would travel north, say they're going to go up into the area of Galilee, they would make a point to travel to the east, then to the north, and then back to the west in Galilee to make sure that they put as much distance between them and Samaria. They would not even travel through Samaria because of the hatred that they had for those people. They would rather travel through Gentile territory than to travel through Samaritan territory. The hatred and the racism will grow and grow and grow until finally in 126 B.C., some Jewish men in the southern kingdom says, we've got to do something. And they go into that northern kingdom and they destroy the temple that was built there. And this just further deepens the divide between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom and the hatred between both groups of people would grow and grow and grow. Division would continue. And how in the world could these two groups of people ever be reconciled? How could they ever be brought back together? Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've just went through one of the most contentious weeks in politics that I've seen in a long time. Now, trust me when I tell you, don't start freaking out. Don't start shutting down. This is not going to be a political speech. It does not matter to me what side of the spectrum you're on. I'm not going down that path. But I want you to understand, and I believe you've already gotten this, that our country is as divided as it's ever been. And you're already worried about your Christmas dinner this week because you're concerned that in that Christmas dinner, this mess is going to come up and cause a problem in your house. You didn't know I knew that, but I, I know that. And we're dividing over the most silliest of things. But we are in a serious place. Isn't it amazing that in a, in a time of the season where we talk about peace on earth and goodwill toward men, we celebrate that, we put lights up, we decorate our homes, we, we do all of the things, we, we do all the shopping to celebrate peace on earth and goodwill towards men, yet... At this stage of where we are and what we've seen over the last few weeks, it's anything but peace on earth and goodwill toward men. As a matter of fact, it's more like, I don't know, um, hatred. It's turned into chaos on earth. And get the other guy before he gets you. What a contrast we have between the Christmas season as defined biblically and how culture has now taken it and defined it into something completely different. Listen, even if we disagree, and we're going to disagree, whether it be cultural stuff or even biblical foundations, if we disagree, there's something that must characterize the Christ follower above all else. And you know what that is? Love. God said it. Jesus said it. And Paul said it this way. The world will know who you are, not by the way you pick it, not by the way you yell in a megaphone louder than everyone else, not by your Facebook post tearing down your opponent. No, God, Paul, and Jesus all agreed, and the way the world knows who you are and what you stand for is simply by the way you love. And at Christmas time, especially the way we are called to love. Jesus is going to do something here that is completely off the charts as far as unorthodox 
outside the norm. What he's going to do here is completely going to blow the minds of the disciples. It's going to blow the mind of the person he runs into. Jesus has a point to make here. And I think we need to hear it today, both as folks who are lost, who've been trying to find satisfaction in everything that the world has to offer you, yet you found none. And also for the Christ follower who's come from darkness into light, how we're to live out this week. Because I know as well as, as, as for all of you, all the dinners, you've got that crazy uncle coming over, don't you? You've got, to, you've got some folks coming in your house this week that you're already stressed out about because they drive you nuts. Well, as Christ followers, how are we going to respond to that? Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, imagine this conversation. So Jesus has been ministering all around in Judea. He's been healing. He's been doing miracles. He's been teaching. He, he's doing exactly what I told you he was doing a few weeks ago. He's, he's revealing who he is by his words his works, and his wonders. And all three of them point to the reality that this man is more than just a man. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, okay, guys, we're going to head to Galilee. We're going we're to head up far north. So get this on the map. You've got Judea down here in the south. You've got Galilee up here in the north. And guess what lies directly between the two? Samaria. The Samaritan people. The people who are hated by all Jews. And the most logical track to get from Judea to Galilee would be going from point A to point B, which is a straight line straight up through Samaria. But listen, culture says, and religion, even the Jewish religion says, you do not go through Samaria. So Jesus meets with his disciples and says, guys, we're heading to Galilee. So the disciples think, okay, I know the path. I know which direction we're going to go. We're going to head north. Then we're going to head east. Then we're going to head north. Then we're going to head back west because we certainly do not want to go through Samaria. And Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. If anybody's going to know not to go to Samaria, it's going to be him. That's the discussion that's happening. And then Jesus gets his stuff together. And I don't know if he says this directly to the disciples or John just gives it as a fact of matter. I don't know if they figured it out when Jesus started walking and he's heading due north rather than going east. I don't know when the revelation came or if Jesus just looked at his men and says to his men directly, I have to go through Samaria. I don't know how that went down, but make no mistake about it. Jesus has his heart and his eyes set on where he's not supposed to be by the cultural standards of the day. I can't imagine what kind of conversation the disciples had at this moment with Jesus. We don't have any record of it. But we know Peter pretty well, don't we? Peter's pretty consistent as he walks with Jesus about trying to correct Jesus. And I don't know if this conversation happened. I'm just going to kind of guess here. I'm imagining as they realize that Jesus is heading towards Samaria, Peter probably pulls Jesus off the side. Hey, Jesus, just thought you ought to know. You, you seem to be heading towards Samaria, and, and we don't head up there because we hate those people. We don't hang out with those people, but you seem to be intent on going there, and I'm just trying to give you a little heads up. We don't go that way. We go this way. don't know if that conversation happened, but I would imagine it probably did. Jesus sends the disciples to go find some food about the time they start getting close to Sakar. Sakar is the same area of Samaria. And now Jesus 
has made about a three-day journey to get up to where he's going. And, and, and Jesus has his heart and his mind and his eyes set on Samaria for some reason. The disciples can't figure it out. They've already departed from him. They've went into another city to get some food. And I think Jesus did that intentionally. And it says, verse 6, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his own son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Here it is, all these years later, and the well that this unknown man dug for his family is still there. And people are still drawing water from it. People are still finding life-giving, fresh water out of a well. They're feeding their animals and taking care of their families. And Jesus has been walking in the noon of the day. It's very hot. And look what it says. Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about the sixth hour noon. So Jesus is weary. We need to take notice of that. Jesus was both fully God and fully man at the same time. So being fully God, he knew he had an appointment in Samaria. But also being fully man, the journey has taken a toll on him. He's tired, he's thirsty, and he knows that Jacob's well is there. Better than anybody else, Jesus knows the background and the history of this area. Jesus knows it perfectly, and he also knows that he's not going to be alone there. Sure enough, here's Jesus sitting by this well in a place he's not supposed to be. As a Jewish man, he's not supposed to be there. And all of a sudden, a woman at noon comes to the well. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why she was there at noon. Some say that it was because of her background. You'll learn a little bit in a moment that she had to go there at an off time, different from everyone else. It could have been that she was an outcast. It could have been that she was forgotten about, but make no mistake about it, she is a Samaritan woman, and from a Southern Jewish perspective, she is less than a dog. And she comes to the well at just the right time when Jesus, the Son of God, is there. Happenstance? Not at all. Divine appointment. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. The disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman says to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So get this awkward moment. Jesus is sitting on the well. This woman is there by herself. There may have been some other people in the distance, but here is Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Jesus should not be there. He should be traveling to the east and to the north, but yet he's there because he has a divine appointment. This woman has no idea about what's getting ready to happen. And Jesus looks at her and says to her, can you give me a drink of water? He is, Jesus is breaking every cultural norm of his day. Jesus had a way of doing these kinds of things. First of all, a Jewish man shouldn't be there. First of all, a Jewish man should never have any or any interaction with a Samaritan, and he's certainly not a Samaritan woman, and he certainly shouldn't ask a Samaritan woman to give him a drink of water. By even having anything to do with her, he would be rendered unclean by the Jewish standards. Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned about any of that. And even she picks up on the fact that something's wrong here that you shouldn't be here, and you shouldn't be offering me a drink. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This is what I love about Jesus. What I love about Jesus is in this moment, Jesus could have brought up her past. He, he's going to do that in just a little bit. 
But in this initial conversation that he has with her, he could have brought up the division that's between him and her. He could have dealt with all the history that brought him to this point. He could have brought up the fact that, that his people of the southern kingdom hate her. He could have, he could have talked about all that and got into some kind of, some kind of argument with her about any of that. But you know what Jesus does? Jesus goes right to the heart problem. And the problem at this moment with this Samaritan woman is not the racism, is not the separation, is not the division, not even that she needs physical water. The problem with this woman at this moment is she is empty on the inside. She's completely empty and hollow. Jesus says to her, if you'll understand who I am, if you'll understand the gift of God, you know who the gift of God Huey was referring to, he was referring to himself. The gift of God given to this world is Jesus Christ. And if you will recognize him for who he is, he will change your life. I am blown away. I am blown away. Every time this happens to me, I'm blown away by it. When I have conversations with people in this community about the gospel, because I'm never going to ask you to, to share the gospel if I'm not doing it myself. So the conversations that I have with people in any given week blow my mind. It, it, this, this is kind of how it goes. Even people who've grown up in this area, even people who've, who've maybe even grown up in church and they know all the terms, yet they do not have Christ in their life. They've never been transformed. So they've become satisfied with just going through the rituals of going to church and, and being part of a church and being on a membership role and, and being involved in the ministries, but they've never come face to face with their creator through Jesus Christ. And therefore their life is still empty. And when we get into a conversation about who they believe Jesus is, I am blown away at how many people don't know who Jesus is. We put the lights up, we wrap the gifts, we sing joy to the world, all the while having no joy at all. We, we've, we've become satisfied with the terms of Christianity. We, we've become familiar with them so much that we've accepted something less than Jesus. We know he has something to do with Christmas, he has something to do with Easter, and during those times of the year we get a little bit nostalgic. We get a little happy about the lights and the gifts and the family getting together. But on the inside, people are void and empty and cold because they've never met the Jesus who changed my life, even though he's been sitting across from them for years. How sad that is. We have hundreds of churches in Robinson County. People have heard about Jesus. They've heard about his death. They've heard about his resurrection. They've heard about his virgin birth, but they have never met the Jesus who changes you from the inside out. It's because we become satisfied with something less than. You're going to find out that's exactly what's been going on in this Samaritan's woman's life. She says to him, now, now this, this term that he said to her would have jumped off. It just jumps off the page when you read it, but when she heard it, it had to pique her understanding. He says, if you would have asked me, first of all, realize who I am. Second of all, you would have asked me for living water. The Greek imagery behind your English translation is this, is a, a well or a spring that is bubbling up with fresh water constantly. You see, you never want to drink water from a stagnant pool a pool that has no flow to it, no fresh water that is flowing through it. You want to be able to drink from fresh water and that living water. Jesus is describing to her a well that is constantly bubbling up fresh water. The well that they're sitting at has been there for hundreds of years providing water. He said, I would give you living water. 
And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well to drink from, from itself and his sons and his livestock. Here's what she does. She turns the focus back to the physical. Okay, you're, you're telling me you're somebody special, but how could you be more special than Jacob? How could you be more special than the traditions of our religion? How could you be more special than the physical water in this well? How could you provide anything beyond what I already have? It's amazing to me how that we'll trust our income and our houses and all of our stuff all the while knowing that it's never brought any peace into your life. I mean, think about it. This week, you're going to open some presents. You're going to have the new tech under there. You're going to have the, the new iPad or the iPhone or something that you've been looking forward to. Maybe for the guys, some tools. Maybe for the ladies, I don't know, some jewelry. Who knows? But you're looking forward to maybe that being under there. Isn't it amazing how quickly we're excited about that thing only for it to kind of wear off in about two months. Usually the excitement wears off about the time the bills start showing up, right? She's been putting her hope and her trust and seeking satisfaction in the physical, her traditions, her heritage. Even, even the water that comes from Jacob's well. How, how could Jesus be better than your 401k? How could Jesus be better than your investments? How could Jesus be better than the stuff you've got? Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. You get your first million, you got to get the second one. You get the new car, it's only new for a while. You get the brand new iPhone, whatever. Whatever the newest thing is, is only new for a little while. And, and, it, and it loses its luster. It loses its attraction because it can never, ever satisfy the deepest longing of your soul that you were created with. It can't. He says, everyone who drinks of this water in this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And I promise you, when he said those words, that Samaritan woman leaned in. I know I've got to come back to this physical well, and I know I've got to draw from it over and over again. But, but you're talking about water that bubbles up. And, and now you've moved from not physical water, but you're moving to something else. And you're telling me that I can get something that I will never thirst again? If he's not talking about physical water, he must be talking about something else. Whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And that phrase, eternal life, certainly piqued her, piqued her interest because she'd been told her whole life that she's got to do the right works over and over again. She'd been told her whole life that her heritage, her culture, her religion, something totally different, a spring of water. I, I read a story about two men who were trying to pass through the Sahara Desert in a truck. They get about halfway into this, this trip, and the truck dies, and they've only got so much water, and they can't fix the truck. They can't move on, and they're stuck in the middle of a wasteland. And they begin to ration their water, and they have plenty of food, but, but water was the key issue. 
So they would they were drinking what little bit they could, hoping that somebody would come by. And days pass and nobody comes by. And the next thing you know, they've ran out of all their water. And then more days pass by. They're not even concerned about eating food. Food food makes no difference. They're they're dying of thirst and their mouth is dry and their lips are blistered and they they're willing to drink anything they can get their hands on. I've read that when you get so desperately thirsty, you will drink anything you can get your hands on. And these men are are just at death's door. And then one of them thinks, you know, the radiator on the truck has water in it. So they take their knife and they, they cut the hose on the bottom of the radiator and they drain all this wonderful, beautiful, green-tinted water into the containers that they had. And they can't wait to drink all that they can drink because certainly this water is life-giving water. Certainly this will quench their thirst. Certainly this will be what they've been looking for all the while not even considering the antifreeze that was in the radiator. And for a moment it satisfies them. For a moment it, it, it gives moisture to their mouth. And for a moment it's satisfying. But every drink they take, take is poisoning them from the inside out. You know what I've found? With everything that I run towards that's not God, seeking satisfaction, it satisfies for just a little while. But then it turns out to be poison to my very soul. It poisons me from the inside. It doesn't bring satisfaction. If anything, it brings chaos into my life. Friend, what are you running after? It may shimmer like water. It may look like water. In your initial taste, it might be like water. But is it bringing any true satisfaction into your life? The Christmas gifts you're going to get in a few days, all the family get together, it's all going to be fun. It's all going to be good for a while. And thank God we've got this time. But make sure you understand, none of that is going to be water to your soul and bring eternal life to your destiny. Jesus says, says to her, Where's your husband? Where's your husband at? She says, I, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, rightly, you have said you, you don't have a husband, but you have had five men that you've been intimately involved with. You know what that tells us? That even more than the racial division and even more than the hatred and even more than the separation and the loneliness this woman is, in fact, an outcast among her own people. That she's been looking and grasping for something that will bring meaning to her life. And she's been trying to find that in another person. And you know what she's found? More emptiness. What you have here is a divine appointment between God and this person. This person has a choice to make. As Jesus continues to tell her about this living water, it still comes down to whether she's going to believe him or not. When he speaks about her husband, she gets a little defensive. And I, I believe verse 19 is, is what I run into with some with folks when I, when I begin to talk about Jesus and when I talk about the gospel and, and, and the Holy Spirit's working on their heart and they're struggling with letting go of the world. They're struggling with letting go of what they've been seeking satisfaction in and, and, and clinging to Christ. And they're in that moment of, of making a choice. You know what often happens to me? They turn the attention to something else. They want me to chase this other rabbit they're wanting me to chase. 
And here's what she does in verse 19. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. You know what? People love to get you to chase some other argument that means nothing. So this week, you're going to have family in your house, and some of those family are going to be lost. They don't know Jesus Christ, and you are going to take the effort and make the effort to bring Jesus up, maybe through your prayer over the meal. But you're going to have a conversation with that person off to the side, and you're going to bring Jesus up. And when you do, they're going to want to talk about politics. Anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything but their lostness. Anything that, but, but them chasing that addiction or chasing that issue, chasing that person to find satisfaction. Listen, they're going to want to delay that conversation as much as possible, but listen to what Jesus says to this woman's response. Let's talk about where we're supposed to worship. Let's talk about, is it going to be Jerusalem or is it going to be Samaria? She would love to have this debate with Jesus. She would love to get his focus off of her brokenness because she's beginning to feel the pressure of the good news of the gospel bearing down upon her life. She would love to talk about anything other than her brokenness. Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Anytime you see that phrase in the gospel of John, here's what it means. John uses it multiple times. The hour is coming. The hour means the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, there's an hour coming. Whether neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you will worship the Father. Here's what Jesus is saying. I'm not taking that bait. Nope. I'm not going down that road. There's coming a day where it's not going to matter whether you're at Mount Gerizim or you're down in Jerusalem or whether you're in D.C. or California or Lumberton, North Carolina. The location is not going to matter. At that hour when it comes, all that is going to be mattering at that moment is that the Son of God has been lifted up and all men and all women will be drawn to Himself and three days later He will walk out of a tomb alive. That hour has come and gone. And it's the game changer. So whether we would rather talk about politics, pop culture, or whatever it is, Jesus says the hour is coming. For us, it has come. And notice what he says. But the hour is coming, verse 23, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Not in the flesh and lies, not, not in traditions, not in church membership, not in involvement in some ministry activity, but no, through the Spirit and through truth. The truth of who Jesus is, that He has come to give living water, and in the Spirit, by which we can then commune with the Father in intimacy and love and beauty. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. The, the Samaritans had a different understanding of what the Messiah was going to look like. The Jews had an understanding of what the Messiah was going to look like. And this Jesus is sitting on that well that day doesn't fit either one of their paradigms. Ne neither, neither the southern Jews or the northern Jews had an understanding of who Jesus is. And this Jesus, this Messiah does not fit. Because of that, in their minds, he would never, ever step foot in Samaria. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She's, she's thinking that one day, yeah, there's going to be a Messiah will come, and one day it'll be okay, and one day he's going to fix all the problems, and one day 
it's going to be all made right. I'm just going to wait for that day. And Jesus says, no, there's no more waiting. I am here. The Messiah, the I am is here. He's in your presence. He's sitting with you on the well. And he's telling you that you can have eternal life, a living spring bubbling up in you, change of life. If you travel to Israel today, you can go up to the West Bank of Palestine, Palestinian area, the West Bank, and you'll find a, a church complex there. It's called the Eastern Orthodox Church of Nablus. It's a beautiful compound. There's one beautiful ornate building. And you can tourists can go in, and you walk in, and inside this beautiful ornate building, you know what's there? A well. Guess where the Eastern Orthodox Church of Nablus is located? It's located about 250 yards from the historical ruins of Shechem. Jacob's well is still there. And you can go get on a plane, travel there, go as a tourist, and, and tourists travel from all over the world, all over the world, to be able to go to this amazing spot that goes back thousands of years, where not only Jacob and Joseph, but also Jesus Christ. Here's the crazy thing about it. You can get on a plane, you can travel halfway around the world, and you can go draw a cup of water out of Jacob's well and miss the point. You can unwrap Christmas presents underneath your tree this week, celebrate all that Christmas is, and miss the point. You can go through the ritualistic practice of showing up once a week and miss the point. You know what the point is? That Jesus Christ, the righteous, His hour came. That hour where He hung between heaven and hell and died, not for anything that He did, but for what I did and for what you've done. And He sits across from you today, and He says to you, I know that you've been seeking satisfaction in the world. I know, I know that you've been pursuing this and this and this, and I've been patient with you, and I've been kind with you, and I've been, I've been sitting here waiting for you to realize that everything that you're pursuing is a dead end. I believe you know that deep down. This woman knew it. All that is left is for you to re realize who sits across from you. And that it's not in the practices of religion. It's not in the practice of rituals. It's not being a good person. It's, it's realizing Him for who He really is. And all of His glory. And all of His power. And all of His majesty. And you know what else He wants to do? He wants to deal with the stuff in your life that you've kept cloaked for so long. He knows about it already. Any time just to be honest with Him about what He already knows. Why blow another Christmas not knowing the Jesus behind Christmas? Why exchange the gifts all in the idea of the greatest gift that's been given only to miss the gift that's been given? Father in heaven, um, so thankful for the Samaritan woman because what it teaches me is, is that not only is your love and your grace sufficient, but Father, we've, we've not gone too far. 
that no matter where we are and the sins that we found ourselves in, even chasing after things that have brought poison into our lives, that you haven't given up on us. Your love and your grace is sufficient. And Father, if your son would make it a point to go all the way to Samaria and break all the cultural norms, certainly he's reaching out his hand this morning to this body of people. Father, I know that not everyone in this room is lost. I know there's probably a a vast majority of people here that have put their faith in you, crossed from death unto life. But Father, I do believe there's some. There's some here that are running after everything in the world and you've been sitting across them from them for so long and they still keep running. May the running come to an end today. You've extended your hand to them. All that is left is for them to reach back through faith, through repentance, which means to basically just turn away from the lostness and the stuff that they've been pursuing and trust you and find satisfaction for their soul. Father, for the disciples in this room, we are going to be faced with some stress this week. Whether it's that last minute shopping, whether it's the family filling up our house. I just pray that we would we would act in love. Because that's what makes the difference. And I pray that we would extend grace just as we've received grace. And Father, that in those moments, your light in us would shine brightly. We thank you for this incredible, amazing, beautiful season that you've given us. And Father, I pray that we'll be faithful with the gospel this week. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.